Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Danelle Baird, founder and CEO of BlockPower. BlockPower is an early stage startup that markets, finances, and installs solar and energy efficiency retrofits in churches, synagogues, nonprofits, and small businesses in financially underserved neighborhoods. BlockPower connects portfolios of these clean tech installation opportunities to impact investors via an online marketplace. Danelle grew up in Brooklyn, sharing a one-bedroom apartment with his family of four that was heated in the winter with a gas cooking stove. As an adult, Danelle has dedicated his career to addressing the inequities he saw and experienced as a child, including as an organizer on Barack Obama's presidential campaign and in the Obama administration, where he worked to expand access to green energy jobs. We have a great discussion in this episode about Danelle's journey to starting Block Power, the why behind what they're doing, the big vision, some of their progress to date, the path forwards, some of the key levers that would unlock a faster transition as it relates to greening buildings. And we also talk about the intersection of social and environmental justice and decarbonization, which is such an important topic and one that I've learned a lot about in the last few years focused on this problem. Danelle, welcome to the show. Super excited to be here. Excited to have you. Yeah, you're one of these people we've never spoken live, but I've followed you on Twitter for enough time that in a weird way, I feel like I already know you. The same. Super excited about all the progress you're making on the fun and really enjoy your social media. A lot of fun. Oh, man. I don't know if my wife would agree, but I do appreciate that. <laughs> I don't know if my <laughs> wife would agree. She wants me to get like a burner account where I like tweet all my crazy stuff from yeah. a different Twitter account and then I have my corporate account. So we'll see. Our wife should talk, come up with a plan. 
Yeah, she she's a lot more quiet, private, I should say. She just likes to kind of do her thing and and lay low. And I rarely have a thought that doesn't get broadcast. <laughs> doesn't get shared. <laughs> <laughs> you compliment each other. You're complimentary. Yeah, no, we make a great match. I'm very lucky. So tell me what Block Power is and how to get going. Yeah, so we're we're a platform to analyze and finance and construct sustainability projects on a building by building basis or a block by block basis. Hint, hint, block power. Nice. Yeah. A little um, branding there. Like yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So building by building, block by block. We analyze and finance and construct renewable energy and energy efficiency projects. And we do that in buildings in low income communities and financially underserved neighborhoods. And, you know, fundamentally, we're trying to turn buildings into Teslas, man. We want to move the buildings off of fossil fuels the same way that Tesla has taken fossil fuels out of the automobile engine. We want to take fossil fuels totally out of buildings. So we can now do that. So we should. And tell me a little bit about the the origin story. So not only how did the company get going, but maybe back in the Wayback Machine, you know, how and when and why did you start caring about this stuff? And what was your journey that led to Block Power getting started? Yeah. So there's two main pieces. There's the part of the origin story around why I care about low-income communities and refuse to to stop serving them as much as my some of my venture capitalists would prefer that we served, you know, people with more money, more budgets, who can move faster, make faster decisions. You know, I grew up in a low-income community. My parents were immigrants. They had to start over. So even though they were well-educated professionals, when they came to the United States, their credentials didn't allow them to access the white-collar workforce. So they had to kind of start over as blue-collar folks. My mom started cleaning bedpans as a nurse, nurse's aide. My dad was a mechanical engineer who ran his home country's bauxite industry, but here he had to start over cleaning boilers for the New York City subway system. And so we lived in a one-bedroom apartment with no functioning heat in the building. So us and our neighbors would heat our apartment building with the oven. We would turn the oven on, heat up the apartment, open up the oven door, open up the windows to release carbon monoxide because we didn't have a functioning heating system. And so, you know, just came up in difficult circumstances in a low-income community, but with a with a pretty well-educated family that always had an eye towards, you know, pushing us towards educational opportunities. So went to prep school, went to Duke graduated, moved back to New York after college, became a community organizer to try and organize low-income families to push for better housing, improvements in the public education system. I had my own Black Lives Matter moment. I mean, this was 21 years ago, but there was an immigrant named Amadou Diallo who was shot 40, 41 times by the New York, four New York City policemen, they thought he resembled somebody they were looking for. He pulled out his wallet to show them, no, 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 my name's Amadou. I'm, I'm not the guy you're looking for. And, you know, they got really confused, thought he was pulling out a gun. They shot him a bunch of times. So when I was 19, the cops were exonerated. And that was the moment where it felt like very unfair to be a young black man. And you, you couldn't figure out was there a place for you in the society that was going to be safe and fair? So graduated from college after that experience, became a community organizer, very focused on how do you get low-income, 
black, brown, low-income white communities? How do you create some economic opportunity and some jobs for them and their kids? So that's one part of it. Then the other part of it is the climate part, which is while I was at Duke, my best friend, Mariana, she's now a professor at MIT, but she was just a very, she was the first climate activist and advocate that I met, sat me down, you know, explained climate change to me. I'd never, you know, in Georgia, they weren't teaching climate change in in the high schools. And so she really walked me through it. She forced me to take some classes at Duke on climate change so I can understand the science. And by the time I graduated, she turned me into a climate activist where I was, you know, attending protests against the World Economic Forum, et cetera, et cetera. So when I became a community organizer, it was important to like, A, put people back to work in low-income communities, but any job that we created needed to be good for the planet, right? It needed to add value from a sustainability perspective. So those are like the two major themes of kind of how we get to block power. If you fast forward, I worked on the Obama campaign as a senior staffer. He'd been trained by the same you know, community organizing team that I worked for in New York, like they trained him in Chicago 25 years before. So when he announced that he was running for the presidency, I joined his campaign. We won, wanted to continue job creation for green and sustainability jobs in low-income communities. So took a job as an outside consultant and partner with the Obama administration and a bunch of labor unions to figure out how to create green construction jobs. Did that for three years. Some of it worked, some of it didn't, and that's when I decided to go to B school and create block power. So if you read my business school application, it's like, I want to come to business school to start a company that's going to green buildings in low-income communities. That's why you should let me into Columbia. It's the only school I applied to. They let me in, and so the professors there coached me up on how to start a company and how to start a startup. So halfway through B school, started block power and been working on it ever since. So when you applied to business school, you already knew that Block Power was what you were planning to build? Yeah, literally. I mean, it's it wasn't named Block Power. I thought at the time it might be like a nonprofit because it was focused on low-income communities and green energy. And at the time, I mean, you remember, I mean, green energy was like not popular in Silicon Valley by the time, you know, 2010, 2011 rolled around. People were already starting to lose money. And so we thought it might have to be a nonprofit because no one wanted to invest in green energy and no one wanted to invest in low-income communities. But in B-School, the professors, particularly Dave Lerner, who's head of entrepreneurship over at Columbia University now, just really mentored me. And we ultimately decided it was a tech startup and there was a massive market with no competitors since everyone else wanted to ignore, you know, the millions and millions of low income buildings across America. It's just this huge white space. And, you know, you could take a VC approach to building a massive business if you can move first. So we ultimately landed on launching a startup. And so halfway through school, that's what we did. So, I mean, we talked about the awakening, the racial awakening when you were 19. And and we talked about the climate awakening when you were in college. And then we talked about the community organizing that you did. But when you went to apply to business school and you had the conviction that block power should exist, what was the germ or the nugget there that, that gave you the conviction and the excitement to anchor? Yeah, it actually was... I mean, and we can talk about this bluntly now, but, you know, I was I was a senior staffer from the Obama campaign and then, 
you know, an outside consultant and advisor to the administration once all my buddies took power in the White House and at the Department of Energy. I didn't want to move to D.C. because I met my wife, who's amazing. She's in New York. I wanted to be in New York. So I took this job where I could commute from New York into D.C. a couple days a week on Amtrak. And I flew around the country talking to governors, mayors, universities, labor unions, Wall Street banks, you know, utility companies like Duke Energy across multiple states to figure out what was it going to take to create a robust green buildings industry. So if you think back to 2009, you know, Van Jones is in the White House. We had the stimulus, billions and billions of dollars. But there's like $100 billion that they were investing in different climate initiatives. Elon Musk got a $500 million loan to get rolling from a manufacturing perspective. They were investing in Solyndra and other solar manufacturers. And so you see the seeds of the modern solar industry that were funded by the government at that time. And they were trying to do the same thing for energy efficiency in buildings. The solar stuff worked out. The electric vehicle stuff worked out. The green building stuff did not work out, despite you know $90 billion in pension fund assets and participation from Citibank and Barclays and support from the administration with $6 billion. We weren't able to figure out how to create like a freestanding, sustainable green buildings industry where you're lowering energy waste by 10, 15, 20%. We were not able to get that to work in the same way that we were able to get like manufacturing for solar or electric vehicles. We were able to get that stuff to work, but we couldn't do it for green buildings. But I just saw this massive opportunity in the green buildings industry. It's like, holy crap, if we could get this to work, like we would create a million jobs, right? Back to job creation for low-income people that I care about. The jobs would be construction jobs going building to building across the country, blowing organic insulation into people's attics, replacing windows, replacing old, antiquated fuel, fossil fuel, wasting heating and cooling equipment in their building. So, you know, you train and hire a bunch of people to go door to door and upgrade people's homes, save them money, make the buildings healthier, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, move away from foreign oil, right? Because at the time we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, what's not to like? about making this industry work at scale to green 100 million buildings across America. So massive opportunity. And I just couldn't let go of the like social and environmental impact that would be unlocked if we could figure out how to make the green buildings things work. So after spending three years working on it and having some triumphs, but having some disappointments, decided, you know what, I got to do the worst thing in the world for me, which is go to business school so that I can learn enough about business and finance to figure out, is there a way to save this industry and make it work? So I applied to business school with that plan. They let me in. They snuck me in the back door and was able to graduate and launch the company on the way out. So what's the postmortem on why it didn't work during your time in government? And what led you to believe that business and innovation was the answer? Well, at the time, the software wasn't ready to go. I mean, we didn't, you know, cloud computing wasn't where it is. Mobile computing, I mean, the iPhone came out in 07, right? Or at least when I got my first one. It wasn't it as widely no, 07. distributed. The App Store was 08, but, but 07 yeah, yeah, was yeah. the first iPhone, yeah. So they weren't widely distributed, right? I mean, mobile computing, 
machine learning was still like super expensive, right? And like really, really niche. And the Internet of Things was like an idea, super expensive, super early, right? So if you go back to 2009, 2010, you don't have these advances that allow you to collect the data that you need to analyze what is the appropriate size and brand and type of equipment to put into a specific building, right? So in your house, right, where you are now, you could have the building next door that was built by the same developer, right? Same material, same blueprints. And the two buildings get constructed the same way, same developer, same blueprints 30 years ago. But now there's 30 years of usage and utilization of those buildings. The ownership and maintenance and behavior patterns of the two users of that building change the physics of that building over time. So even though the buildings start out the same, 30 years later, if you show up and you're like, yo, I want to green your building, we'll blow insulation into your attic and into the attic of the similar building next door. And in your building, we'll trap carbon monoxide and kill everybody in the building. And next door, we'll save 11%. So you've got to now account for the variability in these buildings. And you got to do that across 100 million buildings, which costs a lot of money. You got to hire green buildings, engineer, consultant to do an assessment. They got to measure the equipment. They got to build a spreadsheet model that takes six weeks of thermodynamic calculations. So the upfront cost of analyzing which equipment should go into which building and how much money is it going to save and is it financeable from a Wall Street perspective, that soft cost is an upfront cost that like no one wants to pay, Right. And that's what prevented the industry from taking off. But now, right, 10 years later, because we've had the advances in software, like you can throw some $5 temperature sensors in the building and understand what's going on and make a recommendation using machine learning. And boom, you're off to the races. So you no longer need to spend five, ten, fifty thousand $50,000 up front to analyze the building to figure out what to do for a green building's upgrade, now we can digitize it and automate it in a way that we simply couldn't in 2009. I think that's where we are, and I think that's why it's such a massive opportunity. So was that the initial kernel that basically, in order to know what each building needed, there was so much work and friction and cost associated with it and so many blind spots in the data and you are going to set out to use technology to gather more data to inform that decision-making, automate things that used to be manual and labor-intensive, and make it more practical to figure out what each building needed and connect the dots? Yeah. So there, there are two significant problems that flow from this building assessment problem. One is the high cost. And then two, Goldman Sachs and Wall Street do not want to finance buildings with faulty assessments or unreliable assessments. So like literally, you know, some of the assessors will walk into the building with this thing called a smoke pen or smoke plume. And what it is, is like a pen that releases a plume of smoke from its tip. And then you watch which way the smoke blows around the building. Right. And then you determine, oh, there's a draft coming in from the north side of the building because it's blowing the plume of smoke. This is how we were assessing buildings back in 2009. Wall Street is not going to finance like your smoke signals, right? And, you know, even if you write it up in a 40-page white paper. So so there's a financing problem that emerges for our industry in that 
the $20,000 or $50,000 that it costs to replace your heating system or air conditioning system and make it green, like Wall Street is not willing to finance that project because the assessment process is so bad. So when we started Block Power, we knew that we had this engineering assessment problem and we knew that we had a financing problem that flowed from the engineering assessment problem. So yeah, we wanted to to launch and try to solve both problems. To be fair, it wasn't until I got to Silicon Valley and was in a meeting. It was actually my pitch meeting over at Andreessen Horowitz with Ben. And he was like, he's like, Danelle, you seem very focused on financing and bringing financial solutions to the table. That seems right. But I think you got to take a look at the software side of this, right? And, and think about the way that software can really disrupt these assessment processes and so, you know, in an Andreessen pitch meeting, sometimes they, they punch you in the face just to see how you react. So I couldn't tell, was this like real advice or were they just like giving me a stress test? But no, it was real advice. And so after they and Kapor Capital invested, they really mentored and coached us up on how software and technology could really truly disrupt the industry and then feed into a fintech solution that could be disruptive. And was the hypothesis at that time that by fixing the assessment process that it would build a bridge with existing capital sources or was it more about opening up new capital sources? We thought that we would build a bridge with existing capital sources. And as we started to move forward and build out the company, we realized that we were going to have to create a new financial product, basically. And God bless the team at Goldman Sachs for working with us for three years to develop that new financial product. And so, you know, in December of 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, we closed this facility with Goldman which is the new financial product that we've co-developed with them to finance these projects according to the assessment tech that we've developed over the last few years. Uh-huh. And where did the existing financial products miss the mark? How's your product different? What we had to create is in effect like a green mortgage, which spreads out the risk of potential default amongst a pool of borrowers. And so traditional lenders... They go, oh, low income, that's subprime. I don't care if it's clean energy or whatever. Like, I don't want to lose my money investing in a quote-unquote subprime financially underserved community. But because I was a former community organizer, I know that even in very poor communities in America, there's like millions and millions of dollars that transact in these communities, whether it's into like McDonald's or like payday lending or the local rent-a-center or the local healthcare clinic. And the utility companies, of course, everybody pays their electricity bills or else the electricity gets shut off. And so one of my B-school classmates, because I went to school you know, right after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So a lot of us who were in B-school at that time were people who had worked at investment banks. And so I remember being in class and they were like, yo, you know, we know at our bank, I think they were like Capital One or something like that, or Wells Fargo, they were at Wells Fargo. They were like, we know that when we have a default on a mortgage from a low-income borrower, where we stand in the hierarchy of payments, when a low-income person who owns a home got cash in the 2008-2009 crisis, first thing they do is buy groceries to feed their family. Second thing they do is, you know, they want to pay for like 
cable, they want to pay for internet, they want to stay connected, they pay their utility bills, right? So in their top three payments are like food and utilities, right? Then way down the list, they make their car payment, they pay their car note, they pay their credit cards after that, and then way down at the bottom of the list, they make their mortgage payment. And I was like, well, why do, why do low-income people make their car payment before they make their home payment? And it's because you can't drive to work if your car gets towed because you haven't made the payment. So all of your income stops, right? So understanding the like details of the psychology of how payments get made by low-income people, we're not you know, a credit card financing company. We're financing energy. And energy gets paid second, maybe third. And energy payments get made. And so it just has a different risk profile than someone's FICO score may suggest. Because energy payments are not included in FICO scores, you have to come up with a new and different financial underwriting framework in order to understand what is the risk that an individual low-income person will default on an energy payment versus a credit card bill where it stands in the hierarchy of payments. And so that's, that's where they miss the mark. And can you talk a bit about the block power product offerings and also the customers that you're serving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're working with apartment buildings all over the country, single family homes all over the country. So building owners, early adopters, they want to go green or their buildings are incredibly unhealthy or their heating system no longer works or their cooling system no longer works. They find their way to us. We've got a, a quick online quiz that people can fill out and answer, you know, 10 minutes worth of questions about their building. And that the output of that quiz gives us data that we're able to analyze. We have an internal product that is our building science algorithm, and it analyzes the rates at which energy is like produced, transmitted, distributed, and emitted through the walls or windows of a particular building. So based on the building's age, use case, you know, typology, we've created a bunch of archetypes. You know, it's geography, what climate zone is it? Is it in across America? We have a bunch of building archetypes and so we will run a simulation of that building's energy use, so the thermodynamics of the energy use or waste in a particular building by geography, by type, by age. We run that simulation using the information we've collected from the quiz, using data we've scraped from the government and from the local utility company, and then we generate an automated digital recommendation as to how to green that building. If the building owner wants to move forward, they decide they're going to sign an agreement with us, then we'll move into sending over a local certified construction firm, and then we will finance that project. So we will pay the contractor, order the equipment, make sure it's properly installed, and that it's reducing greenhouse gases, that it's saving money. We want those contractors to be, you know, women, veteran, minority-owned, and so we partner with people to get that set up. We, we have a cohort of contractors in Oakland that, you know, a lot of low-income, minority-owned contractors in Oakland who we've trained on how to install green equipment, and so they're greening low-income buildings that we're financing. And so over time, the equipment that we install is saving the building so much money that the building is more profitable, the energy costs are lower, the building's healthier, it's more valuable now if you resell it. And so those building owners repay us over time. So it's a fancy pants lease of green equipment, 
that is the product and service that we offer total turnkey totally full stack wall-to-wall service from the moment you fill out our online quiz to the moment the equipment is installed in your home we want this to be a seamless like frictionless experience and so in a larger way we're having to like disrupt the way that construction is done fundamentally. So how can we use like augmented reality and interesting construction management workflows to scale up green construction practices across the country? That's like the final frontier for us. But those that's our core set of products. Uh-huh. And does it matter if a building is small or big or if it is renters or condos? No, it doesn't matter. We do all of it. The only thing we don't do is we don't do giant skyscrapers. We think there's enough competitors running around trying to serve skyscrapers that we don't want to compete. We'd rather serve the buildings that no one else wants to serve because they're low income or because it's a co-op and there's like a co-op board and it's a giant pain in the ass. We want to serve those buildings. If people are skyscrapers, they have a, a chief sustainability officer, they have AAA credit, like they don't need us. They can go work with 500 different competitors. We want the other 100 million buildings that no one else wants to serve. So that's what we do. Uh-huh. And what do you think are the biggest differences in terms of delivery or expertise between serving the lower income communities versus serving, say, a skyscraper or even just a similar type of building, maybe in a more affluent area with more expensive prices? Yeah. And this is where we didn't understand that we were like developing a little bit of a competitive advantage. So in a community that's been neglected, it may even have a history of redlining where banks refuse to lend into that community, which unfortunately happened all over the country where banks wouldn't lend into certain communities. They would pull out a map and draw like a giant red line around the neighborhood and tell the staff like, hey, don't lend in these communities. So these communities have had limited access to capital for decades, right? Because they can't borrow from banks. They can't upgrade the buildings, hard to refinance, hard to sell. They have had poor maintenance and a lot of neglect over time. And so you'll see things like lead, a ton of asbestos, a ton of mold that make the buildings incredibly unhealthy. So even if a utility company or a solar company shows up and says, hey, we want to green your building – You got to spend a bunch of money to remove the lead, the asbestos, the mold, and all the unhealthy factors, even before you can do a clean energy upgrade of the building. Now we're in a situation in 2021, we're coming out of a pandemic. We have 30 million Americans that have been unemployed recently, lots of folks who haven't been paying rent. And so apartment building owners haven't been making upgrades to the buildings as well. And so there's like a backlog of accumulated maintenance needs that have been neglected over the last year. But again, in many cases, for several years since the last recession. And so the additional and incremental cost of extra construction work and engineering analysis to remove like the legacy of neglect in in the buildings category, lead, asbestos, mold, detritus, bringing the building up to code, you know, and making sure it complies with the city of San Francisco's, you know, permitting and green construction ordinances and all that stuff. All of that stuff has a set of costs that traditional clean energy engineering firms don't know how to deal with because they haven't been working in the crappiest buildings. But we do... 
now we're in a situation where the Biden-Harris administration has indicated that 40% of all their infrastructure dollars are going to be invested in low-income communities that have been neglected. And so 40% of however many trillion dollars are going to be invested is going to have to engage with mold and asbestos and lead and terrible things that are in buildings that are making our communities sick. And so our view is how do you then start to price the return on investment or how do you use data to analyze the removal of something like mold, right? Or lead or asbestos? How do you use property tax payment histories and mortgage turnovers and volatilities to figure out, hey, this building is actually more likely to have lead. Therefore, we got to send out a a hazardous materials construction crew to resolve some of these lead removal issues before we even get started with solar and energy efficiency. That kind of thing is a specialty that we've been able to develop over the last seven years that we think is going to be a critical competitive advantage as we try to deploy and distribute clean energy across the country, including tens of millions of buildings that have lots of healthcare needs. And what's the pitch to the building owner? And is it a different pitch depending on if, for example, it's condos or it is rentals or if the heating and cooling costs are baked into rent, let's say, or if it's covered by the inhabitants of each unit? Yep. All of those would require different pitches. And so the beauty of it is our software system allows us to say, okay, you're this archetype of building, like... You're an owner-occupied apartment building, which is different from an apartment building where the owner does not live there, right? Different decision-making process. You are a co-op, right, where there's multiple owners and a board that has to make a decision. So the pitches are going to be a little bit different. The fundamental mechanical engineering, the analysis that we're going to do of all those buildings is the same, but we know that that sales process to a co-op to a building where the owner lives there versus not. Those are three different sales processes and three different pitches. And so our team has to develop the capability and maintain the capability and the ability to train new salespeople on how you sell into these different categories of buildings. And so that's one of the the capabilities that we've had to develop over the years is how do you pitch the same mechanical engineering project and sustainability upgrade, but how do you pitch it to different kinds of decision makers? Because, you know, some places your decision maker is your facilities manager, right? And so they don't own the building, but they manage it. And, you know, they're the ultimate decider on, on what happens in the building. So, so there's different pitches. So there's different materials. There's different language that we'll use, right? Like a facilities manager doesn't really care about ROI. They don't care about tax credits, but a, a building owner does, right? Or a CFO does. So that's part of the challenge of the green building space is the multitude of decision makers that have to be in, involved in like, You know, a traditional VC might say, well, you know, narrow your focus and focus on all the co-ops in New England or whatever. But we embrace the challenge, man. We like the complexity and we want to build a micro monopoly across the whole building space. So we're selling to all the building owners we can. And I mean, you brought up the the Tesla analogy earlier on. And I mean, while some might be purchasing Teslas because they're good for the planet, it seems like a lot of people just purchase it 
because it's a really cool car and it performs well. So, so I'm curious if to the extent that there is a consistent value proposition across, I know you said the pitch is different, but it'd be helpful to understand what that is. Or, or if not, you know, what are the three of the four of the most common value propositions that are driving people to move forward with these projects? Our projects are going to save you money. We're going to save you money on your annual energy bills. Your building will use less energy and therefore pay less than it currently does for energy. So you're going to save money. Since you're saving money, your building is more profitable. Now you're green. You're in compliance with all of the new green buildings laws. So your building is more valuable if you choose to resell it. So we make a pure economic argument when we go into buildings. And oh, by the way, we're going to save you all this money. Oh, by the way, you're going to be a green and healthy building. We can help you track and apply for carbon credits and carbon offsets and you're, if you're into that kind of thing. But we're going to save you money first and foremost. And if you're the kind of person that cares about being green, it's nice you know, frosting on the cake. So the value prop is saving building owners money. Uh-huh. Well, given how mission-oriented you are, I'm really curious to ask you this next question. I've been, I don't know if facilitating is the right word, but maybe engaged in some debates on Twitter recently about how important it is to get people to care about climate change. Because you, as you just mentioned, you know, saving the world, saving the planet, the collective goods, like, you know, these people have have much more near-term concerns that they're worried about, like how do they put food on the table for their families and keep the heat on? And you just said you, you lead with cost and, oh, by the way, but it's an aside that they either care about or oftentimes it sounds like they don't. Do you think it's more important to get more people to care or should we just be driving forward these solutions and, and making the cost so attractive that people can't say no? Well, I, I think the latter, but what do, you, what do you think? I mean, where did you land on this argument? How are you thinking about it? Well, I try to keep an open mind because my perspective is always evolving as I have more discussions, but I want to get more people to care. I'm glad people are focused on it. But when I think about where I think the highest leverage points, I, well, I think the more you can just make the math work, the less you're going to need people to care. And yes, we should make more people care, but if if I had a finite amount of resources to allocate, that is not where I would put my chips. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about it. And, and you know, what's been interesting for me is like back to the origin story. It's like, okay, well, what's the origin story of someone who cares about climate, right? You don't care about climate now. How do we get you into caring about climate? One of the things I did learn while I was like, being an outside consultant to the Obama administration is, you know, we got Mayor Adrian Fenty. He was mayor of D.C. at the time. Now he's one of our investors out of his venture capital firm, Mac Ventures, which is an amazing firm with him and Marlon Nichols and Michael Palin. I've been following that that firm's doings on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just raised like 100 million bucks doing amazing yeah. stuff. Awesome story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're an early investor, but before he was an investor, he was mayor of D.C., and he invested $100 million in training and hiring low-income people in D.C., like ex-offenders who had returned to the community, people who had aged out of foster care, like vulnerable you know, D.C. residents. He doesn't get credit for it. And, you know, he's like a humble guy. But it was amazing that he did this. 
I'm not just saying that because he's my investor. It's like awesome on its face. He invested $100 million in like training and hiring poor people in D.C. to green low-income buildings in D.C., which is one of the like most massive accomplishments in the stimulus in terms of workforce development. So we trained and hired a couple cohorts of like low-income people who are not like climate activists. Like they were not in the gosh darn Sierra Club at the time. But what was interesting is like after six months of being on the job, they got way into it. So you'd come into the office and they'd be like, yo, Danelle, I was watching C-SPAN. This Republican senator was out there talking crazy about the climate infrastructure bill. Everything he was saying was trash. And I'm like, yo, are you watching C-SPAN at night? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they really get into it and they become climate activists because the climate movement has nurtured them it has given them a, a good job health care right dignity right so that they can take care of their family and be proud of themselves and they're they're working every day on removing fossil fuels from buildings so even though they're an ex-offender right now over six months of training to do their job they have developed an affinity for climate and now they are a climate activist And that is the thing that people miss about how you broaden and deepen the climate movement. You know, we're working on an op-ed about how, you know, climate philanthropists are worse than VCs when it comes to investing in black and brown people and women. VC is like 3% goes to black people or something like that, or black, brown, and women. Horrible. But the climate philanthropists are worse. They invest less money than venture capital. The reason that it's a shame is not ethical, right? I mean, it's horrible that they're doing this. It's racist and sexist, whatever. The problem is we're losing the opportunity to convert millions of Americans to being climate activists and advocates who can push the Senate, right, to passing the massive climate infrastructure bills that we need because their life and their family and their future is now connected to climate. Of course, they're going to call Mitch McConnell and try to persuade him to support climate infrastructure. So that's that's the thing that's a shame. It's not just the like the moral and ethical crap, which is horrible, but it's also just from a pure political strategy standpoint. When you invest in people, when you invest in communities, when you develop a workforce, that workforce cares, and that's how you create climate activists. Same thing with customers. If you give a customer a piece of equipment that's cheaper and it's better, and it's higher performing, right? And it's just 10 times better than the old crappy natural gas boiler that they have in their basement. And you're like, I'm going to save you money, and I'm going to reduce the amount of asthma attacks that your kid has in this building, and here's some carbon credits for the next time you fly to Hawaii. That's just better. Of course they're going to become a an interested climate consumer and advocate. They're going to be looking for more opportunities to duplicate that. So that's my whole philosophy And yeah, that's how we approach selling to our customers. That's how we approach our workers and partnerships with stakeholders. Sorry for my rant. I feel very strongly about that. No, I mean, it's, I think one of the things I didn't understand as much as I should have coming into focusing on climate was just how intertwined social and racial justice are with decarbonization because in order to transition every sector of our 
economy, there needs to be a critical mass of people, whether it's just people, voters, or it's people, politicians, or it's people, employees, or it's people, employers, or it's people, funders, or it's people, activists, or it's, you know, you need people to be aligned around the fact that this needs to happen. And if there's large groups of people that are unhappy with the current system, and then the people who are re-architecting for the next system are the same ones that have been the beneficiaries of the current system and are going to be just as uninclusive in the new system as they were in the old system. Why would people ever sign up for that? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, you you get it. I'll tell you, I mean, I'm on the board of Sierra Club. I've been in meetings with people who've been part of Sierra Club for years, and they don't get it. And so even though you're you're newcomer to climate, you understand this in a way that a lot of people who care about these issues don't. And I think it's really important. I didn't, though. I didn't. It's not that I didn't think it was important. It's I didn't understand how interconnected they were. Yeah, that they're intertwined. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, the future economy has to have a place that's accessible and clear. There has to be clarity about where everyone fits into it so that we it's tangible and people can embrace it. And that's just going to make it that much easier for us to address climate at scale and to do the infrastructure upgrades across the country that we need. So going back to what you asked me about the Twitter thing, I, I told you where I came out, but there's one criticism of my perspective on Twitter that I don't really have an answer for yet. And I'm curious to get your thoughts. And that is the people outside of the US that say, that say, hey, your your cynical perspective about how no one's ever going to care, like that's an American perspective. Like maybe that's true in America, but the rest of the world's already there, bro. So what do you think about that? We like, where, where's the truth, at least from your seat? Yo, I got something even crazier than that. The consultant who's been helping us with some of our video content is like an award-winning producer, right? Jamila. And she is making a movie about this, like, Harvard scientist and this, like, Bangladeshi activist. And they're into geoengineering, right? And they're just like, we should shoot salt or whatever into the sky and geoengineer the ozone layer, you know, to trap sunlight and, like, deal with global warming, right? Like, that's where they are. And you're like, well how do people feel about this? Everybody in the United States hates geoengineering, except for this like one Harvard professor, right? Who's, David who's Keith. all about it. Yeah. David. He came on the show. <laughs> right. And like, <laughs> but then you're like talking to the, to folks in Bangladesh and they're like, climate change is not some like far off thing. It's here. Like we're having droughts right now. Like we didn't do the industrial revolution that led to climate change. Like we absolutely are going to shoot, these chemicals into space. Who's going to stop us? So you got these. That's like, what he says. That's what he says. It's like, yo, we need to research this, not because I want to do it, but because other people are going to do it, whether we like it or not. And we need to know how to regulate it. Yeah. It's like some James Bond <laughs> supervillain level stuff, right? They're like, we are going to shoot these chemicals into space. Like, how are you going to stop us from doing this? And so I don't know if you can. And I don't. You know, there's lots of obviously social and political and, you know, human and ecological implications for geoengineering. So I'm, I don't have a position on that. I do think it's interesting, this question of the morality and the ethics around who gets to decide what path we're all going to take. And what I'm saying is, in the meantime, 
let's make all this stuff like dirt cheap for people and like get the best marketing and advertising so that we can sell people green infrastructure door to door across the country so that hopefully we can avoid these kinds of dilemmas and signal to the rest of the world, yo, the U.S. is taking this seriously. We've got some businesses that are going to scale up and help us reduce greenhouse gas at scale. But does the U.S. population care particularly little about the collective good relative to the rest of the world? The United States is an individualist. We're an individualist society. I mean, you know, the Marlboro Man and that that iconic, you know, individualistic male identity is part of who we are. We're rugged individualists as a country, and we don't, you know, we sublimate the kinds of, you know, class and racial and, you know, identities. We pretend that they don't exist. That's our culture. And and so we're, we're not a collectivist society in the least. And so, yeah, we bluntly, we do care less. And so part of it from a policy perspective is like, how do you make regular Americans care? So like there's a consumer standpoint, like what kind of marketing can we do? What kind of tech can we do? And can we save people money so that it impacts them in their pocket? But I feel the rest of the world, though, because when I'm out saying, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that, right? I mean, admittedly, I'm in America. I grew up here. I spent my whole life here. Most of the people I interact with are, I mean, I try to have a global focus, but like we have a tiny team and and there's, you know, there's only, we do the best we can, but we end up spending a a high percentage of our content, for example, at least today is US focus. And so, so then I'll say, we need to do this, we need to do that. And they say, look, like, that might work in America. And I say, but America is, you know, has been one of the biggest emitters and, you know, we're one of the b- biggest countries and we, you know, look at our GDP and we, and it, it may, and they say, yeah, but the rest of the world is, is moving on with or without you guys. So like all you're saying is, is that, but that set of things, like it just matters less on the global stage than it does for America. And if you guys get left behind, like, I don't care. I just want this problem addressed. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, I don't right, have a lot right. to say. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I was talking to a brother from Google who's, an Indian brother, you know, we were trying to learn from him. He had installed Wi-Fi networks at like 200 train stations across the like country and continent of India, right? And so during the pandemic, my company, Block Power, we've been providing internet, free and low-cost internet to low-income communities in the Bronx. And we're going to take a look at Oakland over the next few weeks. And I was talking with him and I was like, yo, man, we appreciate all the help. We appreciate you making time to give us advice. And he was like, look, the rest of the world, we need you guys to get it together, like on internet, on climate. Like we just, you know, Trump was still president. He was like, we cannot really move forward in the way that we need to unless you guys are doing greenhouse gas reduction at scale, unless the engines of innovation out of Silicon Valley are pumping and out of the government, frankly, even though Silicon Valley didn't like to admit it. Like we need all that innovation pumping. And he was like, as a, your friendly representative of India, like we need you guys at the top of your game. So I think it's a mix, right? I think like they're going to move forward and do what they do, but like we are one of the largest emitters. We are the largest economy. We've got the largest military. And so we should lead. We can lead and we should lead as best we can. And so all of your work in terms of moving America forward, like I think it's important. And, you know, so does he. That said, if someone's going to shoot some chemicals into the ozone, I don't know what we're going to do to stop them. So hopefully we don't get to that point. So bring it back around to block power and to green buildings. If you think about maybe more systemic factors that are outside of the scope of control or responsibility for block power, 
What are some of the biggest barriers that are holding back these green buildings becoming more pervasive? And if you could only change one thing to accelerate the transition, what would you change and how would you change it? That's a complicated question. The overall construction industry in America, millennials are not entering it. Baby boomers are aging out and retiring, and millennials are not replacing them. So we have an undersupply of highly skilled construction workers, which is a problem in construction and a problem for green infrastructure generally because we need construction prices to be low to keep our costs down. So that's one major problem. I would say the major opportunity is crypto. And I know there's wow. been a lot of I would not have predicted that. That's not yeah. where my money would have been. Well, my we fiat, need- that's not where my fiat money would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we, need, we need the global community, right, of brilliant innovators to be aligned. And I believe the way that we do that is through an internet of buildings that is open source, that is free or freemium, where building owners across America are connected to it, their data is collected, it's available, it's anonymized, and then a community of global developers can interrogate that data and start to optimize and analyze the performance of how best to green buildings at scale across the country. So we got tens of millions of buildings. All of them are custom. We need to incentivize a community of brilliant people globally who are going to help to build the open source software that is not only going to help us to analyze and assess. You know, we we talked earlier in the podcast about this assessment problem, right? On a building by building basis, it's all custom. So we can use machine learning and statistics and predictive modeling to do some of that stuff. But at the end of the day, we want to be accurate when it comes to investing the like three to five trillion dollars of capital that's going to take to green tens of millions of buildings. And so we need to incentivize an open source community to work on this problem. Best way I can see how to do that is crypto. Is anyone working on that? We are going to launch. I don't know when you're going live, but we're going to launch a protocol tomorrow at ARPA E. ARPA like invented the internet, and then the Department of Energy has a they have their own internal ARPA that's focused on energy. And so tomorrow, Secretary of Energy, Secretary of Transportation, Bill Gates, myself are all going to give like 15-minute talks. And we are going to launch this blockchain protocol focused on incentivizing people to work on greening buildings. Well, we're already long in this podcast, but I can't listen to that without then asking you what your thoughts are on the energy usage of Bitcoin. I think that Elon Musk is right. As folks know, he recently said that Tesla isn't going to, you know, accept Bitcoin. I'm very proud of what Vitalik and all the folks at Ethereum are doing to move away from proof of work to proof of stake. I think that's really important. And I think it's really responsible. And our kids and grandkids will be glad that that happened. Uh And Bring it back around to Block Power just to wrap up for anyone listening that's inspired by you and you're a pretty inspirational guy and, and what you're doing, which is also pretty inspirational. Where do you need help? Who do you want to hear from? We want to hear from a community of data engineers, data scientists, product marketing, people who have insights on how to structure data for 100 million buildings or how to market to 100 million consumers and really get to an amazing brand that communicates trustworthiness, reliability, innovation, 
and affordability. That's kind of a complicated brand to launch. So we're figuring that out. So we need help in both of those areas. And, you know, like I said, we want to build a community of people who are all working on these problems and are earning some crypto while they're working on these problems with us. And so, you know, when you come to blockpower.io and sign up, we have our newsletter that goes out and tell you about our protocol for crypto and all that stuff. So we're very excited to be in community with you, with your listeners and with others, so we can all work on this solvents problem together. Donnell, anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? No, but I wanted to ask you how you keep your beard looking so smooth and suave. Looks great. Oh, I and, put nothing. Uh, nothing. It's all, all natural, just, though. Just natural? Again, like we started with you saying something very controversial to my wife, and then we can end with <laughs> you saying something very controversial to my wife because she does not like – those are like the two things she hates most about me, that I'm a public sharer, right? <laughs> And this beard, right? She wants me clean shaven all the time. Oh, yeah. we got we got our own we got our own bro culture going here with the beards and the oversharing publicly. No, I just I love the ecosystem that you're building, man. I love the community. I love the transparency and vulnerability that you're bringing to the space. You know, as you're, I'm sure you're learning in the clean energy space, there's a lot of like intellectualism and policy wonks and engineers who are kind of know it all. If everybody was so fucking smart, why are we still in this mess? So I love I love this openness that you're bringing to the space. And I think that you're creating a dialogue that's like really, really, really important. And these are the kind of conversations that are going to help us like build the community to get massive climate infrastructure deployed across the country. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be on the pod with you and, you know, continue to grow our relationship and find ways to work together. It's going to be it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. Sounds great. Well, this discussion was awesome. So thanks so much. If we had three more hours, we, we could talk three hours more. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but best of luck to you and the and the Block Power team. And I, I know we will be keeping in touch. Awesome. Thanks, man. Great to meet Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.